last weekend, I went out with my little sister right there. Shout out my sister. And uh, some other people I see here. Yeah, we went out on the weekend to watch the new Marvel film, Shang-Chi. Yeah, it was fire, right, bro? It was fire. You know, me and my sister were talking, and we're like, I really hope this isn't corny, you know? But um, it wasn't. It was, it was really good, you know? It was really good. And one thing I love so much about it is I saw so many, like, spiritual analogies in it. Like, there was these little scenes where I just felt like they were really communicating truths about the spirit world, but just, you know, through, through different mythologies. And I was just thinking that these Marvel series, these franchises, they make so much money off them. Like, they're selling so many tickets. And why? I think it's because there's something in these stories that, like, really resonates with something deep within us. And even, like, maybe not Marvel or DC, but just movies in general, they usually have a protagonist and an antagonist, right? And I think what we're resonating with is, like, the reality of that, that there is good in this world and that there is evil. And so a lot of us, we know God, and we know he's real and he's good and everything. But sometimes we might be wondering, why is there so much suffering in this world? Why is there so much evil? And the Bible actually teaches us that there are two opposing forces, that there's good and there's evil. And it teaches us that we are actually today in a spiritual war. And I want to go through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, just an overview of what that battle is, okay? Um, but I'm warning you guys, it's, it's going to get kind of weird, but uh, don't judge me, all right? It's, it's not me, it's the Bible, all right? So praise God. Okay. Um, the first scripture for today is going to be Psalm 82, verse 1. So if you guys could turn to that. I'm not sure which translation this is. I think it might be ESV, but um, yeah, anyway, Psalm 82, verse 1. God stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods. God stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods. Okay, let's break it down. The word here for God is Elohim. Now, Elohim is either singular or it can be plural based on the grammar and the context. So when it says Elohim stands, we know that's singular because that's what you say for one person. Yukon stands, right? That's one person. But then it says in the midst of the Elohim. So there it's plural. Hence in this translation is translated lowercase gods, plural. And so what this word Elohim communicates is when it's singular, it's talking about the most high God, Yahweh. But when it's conjugated in a plural sense, it's talking about lesser spiritual beings. And we see here that God stands in the divine assembly. So God has a divine assembly, right? In the same way that we're assembled here, in the same way that our church has a team of people led by Wale, God also has a team. He has a heavenly staff team of other spiritual beings. And that word is Elohim. Now, what do they do? What do these other spiritual beings do? What is their assignment? And we could read about this in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. 
And that word there is translated benai Elohim, which is basically the same thing. It's Elohim. It's these other spiritual beings. So what God has done is he's given these other spiritual beings in his divine assembly, in his heavenly staff team, to oversee other spiritual regions. Okay, and they correspond to geographic regions on earth. So, God has these other spiritual beings. They've been assigned to oversee different regions. But the problem is this. Some of these spiritual beings rebelled against God. So, they're not just doing their duty that God had originally for them to be good rulers. They've actually rebelled against Him and have a negative influence over these regions and over these people. And there's three instances where we see this happening in the Bible very clearly. And the first one is going to be in Genesis with the fall of Adam and Eve. Okay, so if you're not familiar with this story, it's simple. Genesis 1 teaches us that God made the, the whole world and he made it good. And he created man and gave him authority and responsibility to take care of this earth. And the word there is dominion. He gave man dominion. But the snake influenced the man to disobey God through the eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God explicitly commanded him, you could eat of all the fruit, but don't eat this one. But the snake influences man to do this. Now, who is the snake? We could read about this in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 onward. Ezekiel 28, 12 down. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking. He says this, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Then verse 16, you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So we see that there's this being who is perfect, wise, beautiful, who was in Eden, like the snake was, and this being is called a cherub, a cherub is a sort of angel. And this being sinned, so it was cast out. So this, this passage is one of the passages that Christians um, often use to describe the devil. So he was at once an angel who's beautiful and, and wise and all these things. But he rebelled against God and so he was cast out. And he took the form of a serpent, of a snake, whether that's symbolic or literal, to essentially influence Adam to rebel against God. So now this is the first act of spiritual rebellion, right? We see that God has these other spiritual beings. He has this, this cherub, but this cherub rebels against him. And now what this cherub is doing is he's influencing mankind to also rebel against God. Now let's go into, oh, sorry. Yeah. And so God comes against the devil, against the snake, and he says this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? So he's saying, I will put enmity. I will, I will make you at odds with or against the offspring of the woman. He's speaking to Eve here. And you, the snake. And the offspring of Eve will bruise the head of the serpent. Or the snake. So what does this mean? Who is the offspring of Eve, the woman? 
Well, maybe, you know, she has a son. Okay, that's, that's a direct offspring. But down the lineage, if we track it down, eventually we know that through the human race, Jesus came into being. He is the offspring of the woman that will bruise the head of the snake or defeat the devil. So God is prophesying, yes, you've rebelled. Yes, you've influenced humans to rebel against me, but I will send a human being that will come and defeat you. So that is the first act of rebellion with the fall of Adam and Eve. But there's two more key acts of rebellion we need to know. And I find that most Christians, you know, they haven't really heard about this, but it's quite extensive in scripture, actually. The second act of rebellion happened during the days of Noah, okay? And we can read about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. It reads, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but held them captive in Tartarus, it, um, parentheses hell, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but held them captive in Tartarus, hell, with chains of darkness and handed them over to be kept for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So this incident that Second um, Peter is referring to can actually be read about directly in Genesis 6. And it's also mentioned in, um, in Jude. But it's saying that these angels sinned and they are kept captive in hell to be handed over for judgment. So we see again these spiritual beings that are not right with God, and they sinned, and they rebelled against God, and God has punished them. Now let's get into the final and third act of rebellion. Now this surrounds the building of the Tower of Babel. And this act was initiated by King Nimrod, and his name Nimrod can be translated to rebellion. He's the ancestor of the Assyrian and Babylonian people, which we see the Israelites going to war often with in the Old Testament. And this king, he orders his people to build the Tower of Babel. What was Babel? Was it just a really high tower? Well, it's a bit more than that. Scholars say that it was something called a ziggurat, which is essentially just a Mesopotamian building of worship of idols. So they worshiped other gods in the Tower of Babel. Now, where was Babel? We don't know exactly, but we have good reason to believe that it was in this region, now in modern day Syria, but at the time called Bashan. And Bashan translated means serpent. And in this region, archeologists found something very particular, which is there's over 20 cultic temples to other gods in that region. Just all these temples worshiping idols, highly concentrated in this area of Bashan. And we see the king of Bashan, his name is Og, according to um, Joshua chapter 12. And there's more details given about him in Deuteronomy chapter 3. And in particular, it gives the dimensions of this king's bed. It says it was about 13.5 feet in length and um, about, um, about half of that in its breadth. And you know, archaeologists has actually found a temple to an idol with these exact dimensions of this bed. So this region, it's all good, bro. Um, I love it. I love it, bro. Um, yeah, sometimes these Bible verses, they just hit you in your chest. It's, it's just, it's deep. 
But Bashan, essentially, so we were talking about territories before. We were talking about how these spirits have rulership over different regions. And Bashan seems to be, in particular, an important region for the forces of darkness, a center of worship of idols, and perhaps even the building of this Tower of Babel where they worshiped other gods. Now, what was the intention of Babel? Why did, the, why did King, uh, King Nimrod want to build this tower? Well, in Genesis 11, verse 4, it says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top reaches to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Okay, so it's not only idolatry of other gods, it's actually idolatry of the self. And this echoes the temptation of the devil in Genesis 3, verse 5. Because the devil says to Eve, God knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's Elohim, that word. So the devil is tempting men. Use the dominion that God gave you to betray him and eat of this fruit. Then you will become as him. You will become as one of his spiritual beings. And that's what these spiritual beings have been doing since the beginning with the devil, then with um, the fall in, in Noah's day of these other spiritual beings who sinned, and to the building of the Tower of Babel. It's always the same thing. It's about you worship a lesser God, and I will help you to, to become like God, right? So he sed these spirits seduce other humans with the promise of power. Now... We can see this, these territorial forces at play in Daniel chapter 10. So Daniel is a counselor to many kings. He's seen kings rise, kings fall, and he's a prophet. So he's seeking after the Lord. He starts praying and fasting for 20 days. And in Daniel 10, verse 12, 13, he finally gets an answer to his prayer. An angel comes to Daniel and says, From the first day you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia stood before me for 20 days. Now you go back and read this in your own time, but you'll see this is an angel speaking to Daniel. And this angel is saying, we heard your prayer, but it took me 20 days to get here because the prince of the kingdom of Persia stood before me. Now, is this prince a physical prince? Is a physical prince going to stop an angel from coming? No, he's referring to the spirit behind the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And this is one of the reasons why we are called to have faith when we pray. You know, a lot of times you might pray and you might not feel something immediately. You might not get an immediate answer to your prayer. But the truth is that you don't know what's going on in the spiritual realm. And that's why we sing in that song, Waymaker, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Every time we pray, there is something shifting in the spiritual realm. But we don't know exactly what's going on, what's the spiritual warfare there, so we persist in faith. And like Daniel, we shall be answered. All right, so let me sum up everything from this section of the talk. So, so far, other spiritual beings, they have rulership over certain territories, but they rebelled. And now they exercise evil influence over some territories and even evil influence over individual people like you and me. So I want to give you guys a metaphor. 
So imagine that, you know, in, in this country we have a prime minister, head of nation, then we have mayors, different heads of cities, right? And look, the mayor doesn't put a gun to your head and force you to do something, right? He, he doesn't force you, but he has influence, right? He can change the fees for the parking, and he could do these things that, on the whole, on the aggregate, most people will end up doing what he wanted the policy to do by influence, right? And sometimes that's good, right? He might put a fine for you. Um, if you want to get on uh, public transport, if I catch you without a mask, you'll have to pay a fine. And that pushes people to wear a mask to keep us safe. But sometimes in some countries, the government officials are very corrupt. And they will actually use that influence for themselves to negative consequence. And that's what the Bible is saying that these spirits have done. They've been given rulership like mayors of different cities and regions, things like that. But they don't exercise their influence for good. But the other parallel is that in this country, the process by which these leaders are elected is democratic. And we have a say in who we choose to give power to. And that's the same with us spiritually. We have a say in who we choose to bring to power. And it's in this context that Jesus' ministry starts. And he comes in and he says, I'm tired of these spirits running things the wrong way. And it's time for me to kick them out and establish myself as the king, as the rightful king. So he saw the pain and the suffering in this world, not just as a result of human beings, but actually the spiritual influences behind the human beings and the territories. And we can see this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. This is about Jesus. In this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So he's coming against these spiritual rulers and authorities. And ultimately, he has victory over them on the cross. In Luke 4, verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. Does this sound like a guy who's on the defense? He's on the offense. He's coming to break these spiritual rulers and to set his people free from oppression. Jesus was not on the defense. He was on the offense. How did he do this? Let's read Luke 11, verse 20. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you see that these other spirits had authority in the various territories. And as Jesus expands the borders of his kingdom of God, he casts out these demons. I'm coming back, get out of my house. That's what he's doing. In Acts 10, verse 38, Peter says, Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Wow. So when Jesus was healing the physically sick, he was actually freeing them from the oppression of the devil. And sickness is not God's will, as this passage makes clear. It's actually a manifestation of the powers of darkness. 
And so Jesus is many things. He's a loving father. He's a shepherd. He's a teacher. But he is also a spiritual warrior coming against the dark spiritual forces and their territories. And that's what we talk about in our worship songs. You know, in this one song, um, In Jesus' Name, I believe that's the title, we have this um, lighting up the kingdom um, that cannot be shaken. In the name of Jesus, enemies defeated. All of these things. You know, when we sing, your kingdom come, heaven come, it's actually a war cry. You know, we're actually saying, Jesus, would you come to London and overthrow these principalities, these dark forces? Would you come and set the oppressed free? Jesus, would you come to Croydon? Would you set this land free? Would you come to Shoreditch? Would you come to Edmonton? Would you come to these areas and overthrow the powers of darkness? Now, there's one territory I told you guys about, very biblically, Bashan. And Jesus actually overcame that territory. And we see that explicitly in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion. Why? Well, in Matthew 27, we know that as Jesus was being on his way to being crucified, Matthew 27 reads, They divided his clothes amongst themselves by casting lots. Well, in Psalm 22, verse 18, it says, They divided my garments amongst them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We know that on Jesus' way to being crucified, people cursed him, they spit on him, they mocked him, they said, if you are the Son of God, then use your power to come down from this cross. Well, in Psalm 22, it says, all who see me mock me, they open wide their lips, they shake their heads. Then Jesus cried finally on the cross as he died. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a prophecy about Jesus' death on the cross. But in this Psalm 22, do you know what it says? It says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. And we know the spiritual significance of Bashan. That's, that's the spiritual capital of darkness. And so on the cross, Jesus is surrounded by these bulls of Bashan, by these spirits from this dark territory. And even though he may be fully surrounded and outnumbered, he ultimately has the victory. And we, and we can read about that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death he might destroy him who holds power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So what this Hebrews 2 passage is saying is that Jesus' death was actually an act of spiritual warfare to destroy the devil and to destroy the power of death and the fear of death that he has on people. And 1 Peter chapter 3, 19-20 says a very similar thing. It says, Jesus went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. And we learned about this, right? Remember the three acts of rebellion? So we had the, the fall of Adam and Eve. That was the first act of rebellion because the devil tricked Adam. Then we had the second act of rebellion with the spirits in the days of Noah. And that's exactly who Jesus is, speaks to when he dies. 
First Peter 3, it says, Jesus went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, those who were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. And finally, Revelation chapter 1.18, it says, Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of Hades and of death. So that's what Jesus did. He made himself man. He died on the cross. He went down to the pit of darkness. He spoke to those spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah. And he snatched the keys of death from the devil. You know, this is an act of infiltration. An ultimate defeat of the last dark spiritual territory. So, Jesus came. He waged spiritual warfare. He expanded his kingdom territory into these dark territories. He cast out demons. He healed those oppressed by the devil. And on his death, he went down and he snatched the keys of death and he rose again. So that was his ministry. It was an act of spiritual warfare. And although he had that key victory, the battle continues today. Right? We know that even though Jesus purchased salvation for us, so that if we believe we will be in heaven, not everybody on this earth is going to go to heaven. We know that. You have to accept it. You have to accept what Jesus did for you, right? And although Jesus did heal the sick and he did expand his kingdom, not all sickness has left. Not all suffering has left. So Jesus is crowned king in heaven, but there's still a battle for heaven on earth to be established in every territory. And that battle is for us to continue. That battle is for us to continue. And in John 20, verse 20, 21 and 22, Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. Jesus is saying to his disciples, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. So the same ministry that Jesus had, waging spiritual war and doing all these things, he's saying, I am sending you to do that now, to continue the mission that I initially had. And he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. And at Pentecost, they fully receive Pentecost is the moment where after Jesus' resurrection, he tells his disciples, wait to receive the Holy Spirit. And they do. And a powerful event happens. They receive the Holy Spirit and they receive this gift called the gift of tongues. Now, I don't have time to get into it. There's many different kinds of tongues. But in this specific Acts chapter 2, the tongues they receive are human languages. So they're able to go out and preach the gospel and establish churches. Now, I want you to think about this. Remember the acts of rebellion, the fall of Adam and Eve, then the days of Noah, and then the Tower of Babel. Well, in Babel, they build this tower, and then God scatters them. They are confused with different languages and different territories with different spirits ruling. But now at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and gives these people languages to go and redeem those lands that were lost and to bring them back under one kingdom. So Pentecost is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. And it's actually God deploying us into spiritual war. And the same way Tammy and Rihanna are going to Manchester, what are they doing? They're being deployed to go there to see spiritually what's going on in Manchester. What are those uh, spiritual forces at work? What are the churches that have already been working here, you know? So they're going to scope out the land so that eventually we can go 
and take that territory for the kingdom. So Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel, and it is actually a deployment into spiritual war. Okay? Now, there's one last thing. Is that every time a soul is saved, generally, if we can, we would like to see them baptized, right? You know, the ceremony with, with the water, and they recite certain things. But did you know that baptism also has a spiritual warfare connotation? And I'll tell you why. If you read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 onward, it says, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, da, 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 in the days of Noah, da, 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 in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the second act of spiritual rebellion I told you about in the days of Noah is being referred to in baptism. And it's saying that we make an appeal, and that word is translated, it can be translated as pledge. That's kind of the connotation. It's a pledge to God for a good conscience. And that word for conscience there can also be translated as loyalty. So in baptism, we acknowledge that these spirits in the days of Noah rebelled. But we are now making a pledge of our loyalty to God, to Jesus and it says, at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we are recognizing there are these other forces of darkness, but I have made a pledge of loyalty to this force, Christ, who has subjected all forces to himself. And so that's why, you know, when we did the baptism a few months ago, um, we asked certain people like Francesca or Zach, according to the Anglican um, litur liturgical formula, we have to ask them certain questions and they have to pledge. And one of the things we asked them is, do you reject the devil in all rebellion against God? And they say, yes, I reject them. And we asked them a few more questions and then finally they're baptized. But baptism, when a soul is saved and then decides to symbolize that through baptism, they are making a pledge that I've chosen my side in the spiritual war. Amen. Amen. Yes. So, Jesus won a key victory for us, particularly on the cross. And he's made a way for people to go to heaven. He's released the power for us to cast out demons, heal the sick, and take new territories. And now he's commissioning us to go and take these territories. At the end of all of that, what's the finale? Let's read Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So we don't have to wonder how this battle is ending. In the end, after all is said and done, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And he will establish a new kingdom of heaven on earth. All right. I'd like to pray for you guys. Could we all just stand up? Yes. 
Yeah, I just want you guys, whatever way you can, whether it be physical or just in your heart, if you agree with the things that I'm going to pray, just, um, yeah, just do something, while either lift up your hands or, or, or just in, in your heart, just say, yes, thank you, Lord. Lord, I, I thank you for the knowledge that you've given us through your scriptures. I thank you that we are no longer ignorant of the spiritual realities that are around us. Lord, I thank you that you saved me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus, I have chosen to side with you in this battle. Lord, fill me with power and authority to live and break these forces of darkness in my life. Lord, give me power to break these forces of darkness around me in my region. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we declare that you are our Lord, you are our King. You are the only one who has authority. I reject the devil. I reject all these other spiritual forces feeding me with lies. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Just say that with me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I want to give you guys some time now just to pray to the Lord amongst yourselves. And just, just accept that spiritual reality for yourselves, that you're on the winning side. You're on the winning side of this war. And like Daniel, some things may take time. But I know that I know that my God will be victorious. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Jesus.